All right, let us open up our Bibles now to the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and we will read the entire chapter. And Lord willing, as you see in your sermon notes, if you don't have a copy of sermon notes, by the way, just raise your hand and no one will get you a copy. Uh, Not a whole lot to the sermon notes today, but there are some key things I want to point out to you. Lord willing, today we're going to um, look together at and seek to understand the revelation of God from verses 1 to 6. But let's set everything in context here and read chapter 8 in its entirety. Hear the word of the living Lord. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, this is referring to Christ, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, referring to Jesus, by how much more also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the last, I'm sorry, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Last Lord's Day, we had the privilege, didn't we, of walking through together uh, four reasons, you could say four arguments, 
that were presented by the inspired writer of Hebrews as to why Jesus Christ was a superior priest. How that his priesthood that he was functioning in was superior to the Old Covenant Levitical priesthood. You may recall it was only Jesus, the first argument was, that could completely, chapter 7, verse 11, perfect, permanently reconcile sinners to God. The Old Covenant Levitical priesthood and the Old Covenant structure couldn't do that. So Jesus was a superior priest. Secondly, Jesus' priesthood was accompanied by a divine oath from Jehovah himself. And while the Levitical priesthood operating in the Old Covenant did it under the uh, command of God through law, they didn't have a personal divine oath and promise from God. But Jesus, begotten of the Father, did have that promise. Psalms 110. Thirdly, Jesus, you may recall, was superior in his priesthood because in his very nature as the eternal God-man, He would never die like the various Levitical Old Covenant priests would come and they would go. And so in that sense, they were weak. They weren't permanent. But he is a priest forevermore after the order of Melchizedek. And then lastly, the argument from chapter 7 was Jesus was far superior as a priest and therefore his priesthood is superior because of his sinless perfection. His sinless perfection. Well, having spent the majority of chapter 7 establishing this superior priesthood, now the inspired author begins in chapter 8 all the way to chapter 10 to draw focus and detail upon aspects of Jesus' priestly ministry. He's established for us in his original audience in chapter 7 that you see he is of an altogether different kind of priesthood. And now let me spend a couple chapters here. Of course, you know, he didn't have chapter breaks, but he's in, in, as he is being inspired by God the Spirit, this is God the breathed to write this, he begins to flesh out what that ministry entails. We know our high priest. Now let us consider his ministry as a high priest. And in doing that, from chapters 8 to chapter 10, you're going to see three reoccurring words, Three reoccurring concepts. And these themes, these three themes, they really serve as like a roadmap or a framework that the writer's using to unpack the deep, blessed mysteries of Jesus' ministry. Here's those three themes. Here's those three concepts I want you to watch for as we move forward in our exposition of chapters 8 through 10. The first one is sanctuary. He speaks much of Jesus' sanctuary as a priest. Then the next one is sacrifice. Part of Jesus' high priestly ministry, a key component of it is sacrifice. You're going to see that theme approach from different angles. And then the last one, you saw it a little bit last week. It's clear view now, the concept of covenant. Sanctuary, sacrifice, and covenant. These are the three key aspects that the inspired writer of Hebrews wanted these first century Jews who were converted out of Judaism into Christianity to gather for themselves to help them to understand the full reality of who Christ their king priest is and what he is now doing. 
Well, these three themes, no surprise, really serve as an outline for chapter 8. We will look at today, in verses 1 and 2, Jesus' role in the true tabernacle, the text says. In the heavenly sanctuary. So you see already, uh, he's coming out with that concept, that theme of sanctuary he's going to draw a focus on. And then our second heading today is going to be Jesus' ministry offers a sacrifice. And that's going to be in verses 3 through 6. Verses 1 and 2, let us consider, first of all, begin to consider the text where Jesus' role is functioning as a king priest in what is called the true tabernacle. The text says, Now of the things which we have spoken, that is, everything mostly in chapter 7, the things which we have spoken, I take the we there as an authoritative we, I don't think there's a, a group, a council writing this. My studies of this is he's speaking authority there. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. The writer here is, begins his main point with a summation of everything he said in chapter 7. And we observe that he begins this summation in verses 1 and 2 by first reaching back into something that he's already shared in chapter 1. Notice with me. He says, which we have spoken, this is the summary. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Well, he's already said this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So to sum up everything about Jesus' priesthood, he's calling their attention to the fact before he goes into the ministry of his priesthood, to this fact that he's already shared with them, remember where he is, where I told you this high priest is that I've explained in chapter 7. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high in the heavens. Now I've given to you in your notes Psalms 110 verse 1 because this is, this writer, once again, utilizing this messianic psalm, Psalm 110. He does this repeatedly and it's key and it's important for us to Note and observe every time he does, all right? That psalm you see in your notes is where the Lord, King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, David speaking, first person, Set thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now we looked at this psalm in great detail when we were in chapter 1. And you might recall how that our Lord Jesus Christ he used that psalm to reference himself when he was interacting with the antagonistic Pharisees in Matthew 22. So we unpacked that in detail and we discovered that that psalm was referring to the Messiah and then Jesus himself even refers to that psalm and says, that psalm was referring to me. I am David's Lord. I am the one who has been promised to sit down at the right hand of the Father on high until all of my enemies are my footstool. And so understanding that, the writer here is teaching us, beloved, in verses 1 and 2, something pertaining to, to Jesus' present role and function as a high priest that he did in chapter 7. That is, in this sanctuary, which we're going to look at in a moment, in this true tabernacle, on this throne, Jesus presently, in the backdrop, what was promised of him being in a posture 
of sovereign authority, he is sitting there and he is ruling and he is reigning. He is, as a sovereign, in a place of authority, he is doing what sovereigns do. He is participating in governance, in ruling, and in reigning. This is the whole concept, is it not, that accompanies the idea of a throne? People who sit on thrones rule, right? They don't sit there and let us rule. No. This is showing us a glimpse into our high priest's work in his ministry. He's on this throne, and it involves with it providential governance and ruling. So we see here that part of his role in this heavenly sanctuary is to sit on this throne in a position of authority. Now, this description in verse 1, calling back to what he said in Hebrews 1.3, calling back even to what their patriarch David said in Psalms 1.10, would have been significant, beloved, to this first century Jewish audience. Why would it have been particularly significant for them? And I hope it's particularly significant for you as we consider in, uh, in backdrop of Acts 13, Paul painting that picture of the gospel of being something that God fulfilling his promises all throughout redemptive history. Here's why it was significant. You see, the prophets had always built up this fact throughout redemptive history as they are inspired by God that the covenant Messiah that he promised would be a king and a priest. And we talked about that a little bit in chapter 7. This is why he's after the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek is portrayed in the Old Testament as both a king and a priest. One of the clearest examples in redemptive history where God is building up this momentum, this fact that the covenant Messiah that I'm promising will be a king and a priest, setting upon a throne in my temple comes through and you see in your sermon notes in Zechariah chapter 6. Look at Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. This is in the middle of a context of a lot of visions Zechariah is receiving from the Lord. And we've talked about this before, how you interpret prophecies. In In the context here in Zechariah, there is some immediate applications that's going to be fulfilled with this prophecy through Josiah. But then there's going to be extended, not yet arrived prophecy that would be fulfilled. And that's what we're looking at here. Okay? So in Zechariah 6, 12-13, the Lord inspired in the midst of calamity that's going on, Zechariah, like Jeremiah, we read this morning, is crying out, Oh, will you forsake the covenant, Lord? Will you not remember thy covenant people? And listen to what the Lord tells Zechariah. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, He's given Zechariah hope here. Behold, the man whose name is the branch. He shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. Look at what it says. And he shall bear, possess the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. Here the branch is described. Do you see it? As the one who will build the temple. Uh, You could replace that word sanctuary, tabernacle, of the Lord. And in it, the branch shall bear or possess the glory and sit and rule upon his throne. And very important for our purposes today, 
Zechariah was combining the king and the priest together, and he said he should be a priest upon this throne. Now, what's interesting about this is that the inspired prophet Zechariah is writing this approximately one century after Isaiah. And Isaiah, through the inspiration of God's Spirit, identified the branch as being one who would come through as a rod of the stem of Jesse. And who's Jesse, beloved? It's King David's father. It's King David's father. And David, several hundred years before Isaiah, was saying, Jehovah said unto my Lord, thou wilt sit at my right hand. With all of this scene of why it would have been so significant to them, because this is when I'm telling you how they would have interpreted all this language. Psalms 110, Zechariah 6, Isaiah 11. You know, this is how they would interpret it. They would have considered that the writer of Hebrews is putting together and combining all of these prophecies as being fulfilled in the person, the ministry, and the work of Jesus Christ. The Messiah has come. He is, he has, and still is making enemies his footstool. And he is presently, present tense, setting, Psalms 110, on his throne, ruling in the midst of his enemies. This is how they would have interpreted it. This is the right way to interpret it. This is what it's saying. Now, just as an aside, some Christian societies seek to convince you and I that the fulfillment of these prophecies is somehow or another in the future. Somehow in the future. That there's going to be a throne here on earth. And Jesus and his messianic reign is going to set here in a throne in earth. Go back to Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. I don't think it can fit that. And it definitely has a problem with what the writer of Hebrews is stressing to them right now. He says, don't you remember what I said in Hebrews 1? He didn't say, he didn't reference a chapter and a verse, but don't you know what I referenced earlier in my letter? Our high priest is now on the throne to the right hand of the majesty on high. What is he doing? He's ruling and reigning. The description of verse 1 of our Lord being seated upon His throne in the right hand of the majesty in the heavens helps us, I think, now to understand in verse 2 how He is described as a minister. In verse 1, we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Still considering this aspect of Jesus' ministry as this high priest described in chapter 7. He described here, even though he's painted in a light of a sovereign king, one of authority on a throne, now he's called a minister. Well, you see in your notes in the Greek, notice what it means. It means a servant. But notice what it also carries with it, according to the lexicon that I used. Uh, This is Strong's. It's a servant, one busied. He busies himself, Brother Ross, with holy things. So he's a sovereign on the throne that's busying himself specifically in his ministry with holy things. With this, it's to our great joy, church, that we understand that our sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this position of authority, in his station, in his office, 
as a kingly high priest is not a king, is not a high priest who's inattentive. He's not indifferent to the continuing needs of his covenant people, is he? No, he's busy about holy things. But what are those holy things? Those holy things, you might ask, are the fulfillment of Psalms 110. Back to your summer notes. What did Psalm 110 say? I will make thy enemies thy footstool, and you shall rule in their midst. He's actively pursuing this holy business of making his enemies, his servants, and after he subdues them, Rebecca, he's going to rule in their midst. Over in 1 Corinthians 15.25, we know that this is the case of what he's doing because this is how Paul describes the holy activity of Jesus, the high priest, sitting on this throne. 1 Corinthians 15.25, Paul says, For he, referring to Jesus Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You see how they're always using Psalms 110 to refer to Christ. Now church, we previously demonstrated from Psalms 110 when it was first used by the author of Hebrews that the conquest being described there is the amazing, it's the powerful, it's the sovereign work of salvation and sanctification. That's what's being described in Psalms 110. And in this conquest, the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son with an invincible, efficacious ability to do what? Crush the rebellious will and crush the rebellious pride. I'm giving you a, re, a, a recap of the interpretation of Psalms 110. It gives, it, he crushes his enemies, Ross. And he makes them no longer, as Paul says, an enemy of God, but what? A servant. A servant. In the midst of his enemy, he comes through. He takes the hardened heart that's calloused and cold with sin. He crushes it and makes it palatable as clay. And he rules in their midst through his word. The picture portrayed here is not of a high kingly priest who is bored upon his throne, beloved. Rather, it's a portrait of a minister who is actively concerned with the business of moving all creation, its redemptive purposes to their consummated end, and that is to bring all of those who as an inheritance the Father gave him into his kingdom. Having considered Jesus' role in the true tabernacle, we must also notice in the text in verses 1 and 2 the description of this sanctuary. The description of this tabernacle. Verse 2, he is a minister there. He is subduing his enemies. He's about the business of the holy work as a minister of doing this high priestly work which the old covenant could not do and only he can do through the power of his efficacious spirit. A minister of the sanctuary. And the text we have to note, he refers to this sanctuary as the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not men. Beloved, do you recall how last week we pointed out the fact, and it was an important point, 
that in chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, the writer was stressing the fact that Jesus' priesthood was of a different kind of priesthood. It wasn't the same order of a priesthood that needed to be reformed. It was altogether a different order. Didn't originate in the Arianic stock. Wasn't appointed according to the Old Covenant law. Was given by a divine oath of the Father in eternity past. He is a different kind of priest. Altogether a different category. Do you not notice here with the language that's being used? He's placing his sanctuary. He's placing his tabernacle in which he ministers the work of later on. We'll see it next week. A better arrangement, a better covenant, a different covenant. Do you see he's stressing the fact that it as well is different? It's not a different form. It's not a different arrangement. No, just as he as a priest and he is a priesthood is altogether different, so is his sanctuary. In fact, as we consider this and we go through and we continue to go through the book of Hebrews, he's going to stress this. His sacrifice, his sanctuary, his covenant must always be thought of as entirely different, entirely separate from another category of that which was first and old. In fact, the writer will continually reference this aspect of Jesus' sanctuary being different, uh, unique. He'll do it in Hebrews 9. He'll do it in Hebrews 10. And some believe this aspect of him stressing this is why we ought to believe that, just as a side note, the the book of Hebrews ought to be um, considered authored by Paul because Paul uses this same sort of terminology in his epistles. But let us ask this question, and here's where it gets interesting. How does this description here of the true tabernacle compare to what we learned in chapter 6 for those that were with us? Turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, because what are we really talking about here in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2? Aren't we talking about the fact that this high priestly king, our Lord Jesus Christ, the promised messianic king priest, Aren't we talking about the fact that he's arrived, that he's accomplished a work, and that now he is stationed on a throne somewhere? That's what we're talking about. But don't you remember in chapter 6, where's it at here? Verses 18. Look at 18 to 20. He's going through, you know, why... um, we have a, a, a confidence, you remember the context, a, a confidence, a stronger hope in Jesus as a high priest and the covenant arrangement that he made with the, uh, with the Father. And this is brought about because in verse 18, uh, the, the, the uh, character of God, the attributes of God, it says that by two immutable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to laid hold upon the hope that is set before us, Verse 19, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul. This is where Jesus is called that anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. Here it is. Which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us, some translations say already entered, even Jesus Christ. Unless I am mistaken, when I unpack chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, 
I believe that this is properly speaking of the resurrected Christ possessing a glorified resurrected body which went within the veil which we sought to demonstrate was Godhood after accomplishing His sacrificial victorious work in this realm we call earth. He went as a forerunner there demonstrating that someday we have a hope to be resurrected and that we ourselves will transcend this realm in which we live to be in some way or another somewhere else. We use a language, biblical language called heaven. If that's a right interpretation of that, if that's correct, this is where Jesus is now. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, in this thing called a sanctuary, a true tabernacle on a throne. He's there. We must also recall something else that Hebrews chapter 1 labored to demonstrate, that He is God. And as God, He created all things. Do you remember that in Hebrews chapter 1? You're thinking, okay, well, where is this going, Pastor Doug? Well... (laughs) I thought the same thing. Jesus' divine sanctuary in which He now is being presented in chapter 8 is ministering cannot be understood by you and I rightly as being in what we call heaven. Why? Heaven is that which is created. God is other than creation. Heaven is where created angels, cherubim, and other spiritual created beings dwell. Not the divine sanctuary, which must rightly be considered as being elevated as God above all space, time, and creation and cannot be comprehended ever fully by creation. Track with me here just for a second. Christ as God, going within the veil, in the divine sanctuary, has to be rightly considered, I'm contending, as something that's uncreated. It is where He is. He's in the Godhood, which is outside of all creation. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. Alright, you guys are tracking with that. God's outside of creation. Okay? This is where Jesus is. This is where his throne... You know the throne is not a literal throne, beloved. The throne being described here in verses 1 and 2 is a picture of authority. This is a celestial... This is an imagery thing for you to understand that this is where our high priest is ministering from as God within the Godhood, outside of all creation. But some of you are asking, as I did at this very moment, well, if this is true... If Christ is, as God, creator of all things, and He is separate, He is outside, He is above, He is sovereignly over all creation. Not in it. Not dependent upon it. Pastor Doug, how do we make sense then of these verses in the Bible that are meant as a means of grace to give us hope? In the book of Revelations, for instance, in chapter 22, verse 4, where it says that the church, we, His people, We will see Him after our long pilgrim journey, Rebecca. We will see Him face to face. 
And our names will be on his forehead. How do we make sense of that? What about Revelation 21.3? Where the text says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man in the hereafter, in this place called heaven, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. If, as I'm proposing to you, if Jesus' sanctuary, his true tabernacle, described in verses 1 and 2, are within the veil in God himself, then doesn't this cause some tension with these verses in the Bible? We'll be with God in heaven. Well, here's where you've got to get your brain stretched just a little bit. You do come to church to get your brain stretched, right? Okay. I could just give you a sermon jump from John 3.16. God loves the world. And, okay. All right. God, the only absolute eternal being, which Jesus is, he assigns conditions to all of his creation. Those conditions are time and space. You know that Jesus as God is outside of that. He, those are conditions. Those are limits by which he frames our existence. He has a condition called heaven. And Brother Scott, in heaven, the Bible teaches, there are celestial beings in heaven, oftentimes identified by their job description. You know, angels is just a job description. Uh, there's the cherubim. Cherubim's a, this uh, celestial creature that God created to exist in the framework of heaven. The cherubim can't exist here. He gives us as humans conditions, space, time, called earth. We're on this earthly realm. Right now, in that form of a body, Brother Grace, you can't go up there and kick it with the cherubim. You'd probably like to, but you can't. You see what I mean? As God, He creates these conditions. Maybe it's helpful to consider them as realms in which his creatures are framed by their own existence, but he is outside of that. His existence isn't within that. He is God. He is high. He is holy. He is outside of that. He's lifted above that. It doesn't even help. I was thinking about this. It doesn't even help to do it like this. It, does, it doesn't even help to, to do it like this. You could in a way do it. His creation. And, and, we, and we could say, all of these illustrations bring down at some point. You have to appreciate that fact. So work with me. Here's the cosmos. Okay? As far as our telescope can see, we know it goes farther than that. But let's say it's all contained right there. Right? And then you have us right there. Probably not even that big. And then you go down even further, and me and you are just a piece of dust. If that. It doesn't even help to say, like, that's where he is. God. The lines. I should put a cross on it. But, but he's outside of that. Because really, it's not even a. It's not even he's a. He's outside of that, like beyond what we can see, because the Bible says that in his essence he is everywhere. So the Bible presents a reality that space and time, created he- realms, heaven, hell, are places through which God, Jesus comes into in order to manifest His glory, His mercy, or to the rebellious wicked, His wrath and justice. This is what hell, 
This is what hell is. Hell is a part of creation by which the Almighty who's outside of that will come in and make manifest known to all the wicked, rebellious people who have transgressed against His holy, righteous crown, His justice. And then, in the new heavens and the new earth, He still makes Himself known coming from outside into our realm as creatures to make known His eternal light. The beauty. He's the Father of all lights, the Bible describes Him as. Now, you say, okay, (laughs) you know, that was a fun exercise. Okay, I kind of get a better picture then of where Jesus is on this throne in this divine sanctuary. Oh, but don't you see how that that little exercise exalts all the more His glory? Because this, even in your glorified state, brother, where the Bible teaches us that we will see and understand things more clearly. Right now, even, we get a small taste. Do we not? We get, a, we get a taste, and it's a beautiful taste, Brother Scott. We were talking about it. We get a beautiful taste. It's a lovely taste. Praise be to God, I have a taste of His grace. A sense of my existence. A sense of His existence. A sense of my purpose serving Him and His Son. Praise God, I get a taste of that. The Bible teaches that we'll see the glass more clearly, though, on that side. But the point is, even on that side, when you're freed from the remnants and the shackles, the holdups of a corrupted flesh, even then in a glorified state, you will say like the cherubim, understanding your humble place in that creation, holy, holy, holy God Almighty. Even in that state, Fraser, we're going to understand and see that He is altogether still different than you and I as created beings, even though in a glorified state, and we will lie prostrate before Him and worship Him. In some mysterious way. And it is mysterious. Can I get an amen that... Okay, can I get an amen that the Christian faith is uh, extraordinary, supernatural? Okay, thank you. Because sometimes I believe that Christians like you know, are, are imperialist, scientific people. There's some mystery to this eschaton view that I'm describing to you where Jesus in His glorified state still us recognizing He is altogether different. Right? We're altogether still dependent upon Him. There is a sense in which we will know Him as friend. There's still a sense in which we will love Him as Savior. There's a sense and still we will be able to see Mike visibly the scar that is right now on on his resurrected body. So there seems to be a picture painted here for us in his role in his sanctuary of just an eternal, perpetual, condescending down as the great I am that he identified himself. Glory be to Christ. Amen. Amen. Can you just, with your sanctified imagination, try to go there a little bit? Incy, wincy bit. The Christian faith is real, my friend. 
These realities that we're discussing right now, they will come to full fruition someday. And we will be in His presence only by His grace and His mercy, condescending down into that heavenly realm and abiding with us, giving us the full consummated joy that He promised us. Wow. Amen. Glory be to a covenant-keeping Savior and priest. Well, a little bit about his sanctuary, a little bit about his role in this high priestly ministry that he's functioning in, we're seeing in verses 1 and 2. But let's move on now to our second heading. Jesus' ministry offers a sacrifice. This goes a little bit quicker here uh, because really it's a lot of it's repetition from chapter 7 in a way of chapter uh, verses 3 through 6. So he, he's describing here, uh, right, uh, He's getting us into the, 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 the thinking of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' uh, sanctuary, His throne in that tabernacle, where it's at, and it's, it's altogether different. Remember that. He says, every high priest... Now he picks up something that he mentioned back in chapter 5, this idea that the high priestly order uh, is only legitimate if it offers gifts and sacrifices. He says in verse 3, every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices... Wherefore, it is of, here's the key word, necessity that this man, this is referring to the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, have somewhat also to offer. Here he now is asserting that ever since, oh, I'm sorry, he's, he's asserting that ever since a high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so also Jesus Christ as a high priest has something to offer. Now, what he doesn't do right here for us immediately is expand on what that offering is. But just look up in your Bibles to seven, chapter 7, verse 27. He's already kind of told us what the sacrifice is. Uh, this is one reason why he was superior to the Levitical priesthood. He offered up uh, his own... I'm sorry, he offered up himself. So he's already tipped his hat to what the sacrifice is, but in chapters 9 and 10, he unpacks that ministry of the sacrifice and its significance. The first thing, though, I want to draw from this, even though he doesn't go into detail about sacrifice, is that word necessity. That word necessity. Look at your sermon notes. I gave you that word in the Greek. Lexicon says for us, what one cannot do without. His priesthood cannot do without. His ministry in this sanctuary on this throne cannot do without. It is indispensable from the sacrifice mentioned learn more later about it. Here we gain, I present to you, beloved, an immeasurable insight into one aspect of the eternal messianic oath from Psalm 110, which is so heavily utilized in this letter. This insight here of the necessity of a sacrifice to make legitimate his priesthood, to operate within a legitimate ministry as a priest, the insight offered is this. That the covenant promise described in Psalm 110 between the Father and the Son, by which the, pro- the Father promises to give the Son victory over those who were His rebel, uh, rebels and enemies against His crown, there was a complete awareness and a necessity and agreement of the required sacrifice that would be demanded in order to ratify that oath. Without the sacrifice, there would be no covenant. 
Without the sacrifice, there would be no inheritance, no enemies turned into servants given to the Son. It was of necessity. I'd like to draw your attention to John chapter 17. Turn your Bibles to the New Testament, John chapter 17. This portion of Scripture, I think, captures this transaction of the awareness of the necessity of the sacrifice the Son would have been well aware of before the covenant or the oath would be ratified in its fullest. John chapter 17, you all know this is commonly called Jesus' high priestly prayer for His church before He's about to go and sacrifice Himself, voluntarily give His life for the church. Let's begin with verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Oh, oh, okay. Well, That sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? The hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee, as Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. That's His enemies. Verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Here it is, verse 4. I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work. If you don't think it's sacrilegious, underline the work. The work which Thou gavest me to do. So in this transaction, eternally in Psalms 110, there was an awareness in our Lord's mind as our covenant representative, as our priestly representative, that it would be necessary that He give a sacrifice. Chapter 7, verse 27, of Himself. Not only was Jesus aware of this, required necessary sacrifice in order for him to be the high priest to function in the ministry in the throne that we just described but he also predicted it you may recall from John chapter 3 speaking to Nicodemus he says Nicodemus as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so the son of man must be lifted up he was prophesying his own necessary sacrifice wasn't he John 12:23-24 last one The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Amen and amen. Our Lord in this victorious conquest to fulfill and have given to Him this inheritance, He understood all the while that it would require His own death. Oh, the selfless example the sacrificial imminent example of our Lord Jesus Christ there is no blessings brothers and sisters without sacrifice there is no life without death the Lord Jesus Christ his entire covenantal ministry exemplifies that and this is why he says to those who want to pick up their cross and follow him you must die to yourself in order to follow me. Me and my son were talking this morning, Mike, and we were sharing with one another. What part in your life, what part of my life are we not dying to? And we're still limping trying to follow Jesus. It's got to be killed. It's got to be killed. It comes between us and His holy, imminent, loving light.
Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, it has to be sacrificed. He goes on in verses 4 and 5, once again confirming that Jesus' ministry is altogether of a different kind from the Old Covenant. Now, coming back to Hebrews, let's go back to verse 4 and 5. He says, if, it were, if he, Jesus, was on earth, it's, it's kind of, you've got to follow the logic here, the, the, the flow of his argument, because it's, it's a little tricky when you first read it. But he says, if, we were, if he were on earth, we are on earth, right? If he, Jesus Christ, if this high priest was on earth, he should not be a priest. Well, wait a minute. Why wouldn't he be a priest? I mean, he is the kingly priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's see. Let's go on and see why. Seeing, or because, some of your translation may say, that there are priests, present tense, there are priests, that offer gifts according to the covenants. So this is written, obviously, in the context where the Mosaic law is still being worked out. There still is a temple, physical temple, and there are priests there still doing those sacrifices, even though Jesus, Acts 13, has come. He's delivered the good and glad, glad tidings, Paul says. He has died, he has resurrected, and he's ascended, and he's on that throne we described. There's still the Jews over there practicing um, in their blindness, and their rebellious and their blindness. They're still practicing the Levitical priesthood. So, if Jesus was on earth, he contends in his logic. He wouldn't be a priest because those priests are over doing that. And what they're doing, look at verse 5, what they're doing serves unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, but to substantiate this, he goes into the account of where Moses is told how to build the tabernacle. As Moses was admonished of God when he was set about to make, make the tabernacle, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed unto thee to thee in the mount. Now, why, well, why couldn't Jesus operate within that? Again, this is another, verses 4 through 6, part of this sermonic letter where he's stressing he's altogether a different kind of priest, different kind of ministry, different kind of covenant. He can't operate through that covenantal context. He can't go down there and walk up Rebecca in the temple and say, oh, hey, guys, you guys got it all wrong, you know. God never told you to do this. You brought some traditions in here. Let's, let's reform this, you know. I'm a reformer. No, no, he couldn't do that. Because those things were all but just shadows pointing to him the substance, but they could never administer it. Jesus couldn't go in and sacrifice a goat because it pointed to the only sacrifice that can make man perfect. That's why you can never allow the theological concepts that say the covenant that's being described with Jesus as the priest of is the same covenant that they operated under then, only in a new form. Oh, wait a minute. That dog, as Vody Blackman says, doesn't hunt. Because... If it did, Jesus could just continue to be a priest through that order. He's there. He's the substance. Hey, just so you guys know, and this is what some societies of people who call themselves, uh, I, think, I think it's uh, uh, Messianic Christians or something like this, some hogwash. Uh, they'll, say, they'll, say, uh, they'll say, hey, we're going to do a, a Christian Seder. We're going to do like a, a Jewish Passover. We're going to show you how it points to Jesus. And I'll say, well, Jesus could have did that, you see. He could have come in and he could have gave... The same covenant 
a new form and move right along the way. But he didn't do that, Rebecca. He didn't do that. Why? Because he was of an entirely different kind of representative. We're introduced to the first time the word in verse 6, mediator. He was altogether a different type of mediator, a different type of priest of a different type of covenant. It could not operate in and through and be administered, Fraser, through the inferior, weak inability of the old covenant because they were but shadows. They were never the covenant of grace. They were never part of and making up of the covenant of grace. They never dispense perfect, righteous, salvific grace. I'm stressing that on purpose because this covenantal understanding of what's being articulated here in Hebrews that's in harmony with the text that's been lost amongst our churches for a very long time. Verse 6. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. I just wanted to emphasize there in verses four through six, or three through six, sorry, that the main thrust ends with chapter verse six, which then goes into a word for word almost. Um, repetition, a republishing of Jeremiah chapter 31, which was promising in the future a different covenant arrangement. And so he's just introducing here something that we'll unpack next week. He's just introducing here the fact that he is an altogether different kind of priest. He operates within an altogether different kind of sanctuary. And verse 6, he is administering the word mediator there, an all different type of covenant, which is better. And then he's going to spend the rest of this chapter, chapter 9 and chapter 10, showing them why it's better. Amen. Praise be to God that you and I are here today, in conclusion, observing the fact that our high king priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is lifted up on a throne. Hercules, um, Hercules Collins. We've got these in our pews today, by the way. You can look at this if you want to. It's uh, page 132. Hercules Collins says in the Pillars of Truth there, page 132, question 48 says, what fruit does the ascension of Christ into heaven bring unto us? He says, first, that he maketh intercession to his Father in heaven for us. Praise be to God, he's on that throne, Nolan. And he's there making intercession for us. Next, he says that we have our flesh in heaven. What does he mean by this? He, he means this glorified God-man, resurrected, given us hope that we will be glorified like him. That we may be confirmed or encouraged thereby, as by a sure pledge that it shall come to pass, that he who is our head will lift us up, his members unto him. Thirdly, that he ascendeth up he ascendeth us, he sendeth us his spirit instead of a pledge between him and us. Even though he's not here with us, he is with us through his spirit. How is he with us in the spirit, but yet being there? Because he's alive. He's ruling and reigning. By whose forcible, in our modern English, we probably wouldn't pick that word, but it is true. The Holy Spirit is forcible, it is invincible. 
by whose forcible working, invincible working, we seek after not earthly, but heavenly things, where he himself is sitting at the right hand of God. Beloved, this text today, we, we can walk away from it and we can be reminded of the fact that our intercessor, our high priest, is at the right hand of God. It gives us hope and encouragement for our journey unto the end. Amen. And lastly, it helps us to see the immense privilege we have being in the new covenant. Being in the new covenant. We don't have shadows. We don't have types. We have the real thing. We have the substance. Faith given to us by the forcible working, I like that, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and, oh Lord, some of the considerations today that have been presented forth in these concepts of Christ, high, lofted, priestly office upon a throne, in the sanctuary that resides only within thy divine essence. Lord, it humbles us afresh. It humbles us again uh, as your people, Lord. Oh, what is man that you are mindful of us? Father, it is a mystery that we will never never comprehend, which we alluded to earlier. And even when we see you face to face, there still is a great, vast distance between what we will know and all that which you do know. Lord, we reverently worship you. Lord, we humbly just bow before you. We thank you, O Father, that you sent thy Spirit, oh, to make us your sons and daughters, to bring us and recognize that Christ and Christ alone is sufficient to save us from our sins. We pray, Lord, as we approach the remembrance of your blessed sacrifice upon the cross that Jesus you would minister to our hearts I do not know where everyone in this place is I do not know oh what their trials are what their temptations are what their afflictions are but you do oh blessed high priest Jesus Christ and I pray that you would help them to see that you are there with them that you are there ministering indeed for them at the right hand of the father And however that transaction takes place, oh, we are reassured that it is on our behalf and we thank you for it. We bless you for it. We pray all these things and give you thanks, honor, and glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.